today we're having a one-off Diamond Jubilee special with the Jubilee weather thrown in for good measure. And uh, so Psalm 72, which is printed inside your sheets there, Long Live the King. Uh, we're delighted to have Alan Johns, who is a member of our Sunday Barge Church. And we also have a Sunday church for people who live in the Docklands area, in addition to the midweek ministry for you guys who work in the wharf. Um, so Alan is a property barrister uh, normally during the week, but we're very pleased that he's taking some time out this week to speak to us. So thank you, Alan. Thank you, Marcus. Yes, let me add my uh, welcome to Marcus's and let me pray for us before we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here out of our busy days. Please speak to us by your powerful word and change us for our good and your glory. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're looking at, uh, in this Jubilee special, at Psalm 72, and that's printed on your sheets that uh, you have there. So do follow that through uh, as I read it for us now. Give the King your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the Royal Son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him, may prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of corn in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruits be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Well, I wonder if you saw any of the uh, Andrew Marr series on the Queen uh, in the run-up to the Jubilee. In one of the programmes, he followed the Queen to Australia, uh, where she's still head of state. And there was a wonderful bit where he interviewed a leading Republican. He asked uh, for her thoughts on the Queen's visit. I wish she'd stop coming, she said. She sets our cause back years every time she comes. Well, Psalm 72 gives us a glimpse of another sovereign, this time a king. And if we've so far rejected this king or had our doubts about whether we want him, so if there's a bit of Republican in that sense about us, I hope that cause will be dealt a blow by meeting the king uh, in this psalm. Now, most immediately, uh, the psalm we've just read was about Solomon, 
So when it's printed in the Bible, there's a note at the top of Solomon. But we know, of course, from the historical accounts of him, that Solomon didn't end up fulfilling the picture painted in Psalm 72, and nor has any subsequent king or queen. And that's not surprising, because the king the psalm is ultimately about uh, is Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, it's a psalm about a king over all other kings. Look at verse 11, may all kings fall down before him. Now, the queen held a dinner earlier this year, attended by many of the other sovereign heads of state, and it was like the scene in verse 10 there. Kings and queens from all over the world coming to pay tribute. But there was a difference to the scene in the psalm, and not not just in the fact that Spain boycotted it. Um, I took particular note, there was nothing like verse 11 going on. So none of these other heads of state fell down on the floor in front of the Queen and Prince Philip. No, they just shook their hands and walked into dinner. And that reflected the fact, of course, that they were equals. But the, the king of Psalm 72 isn't the equal of other kings. He is a king above all other kings. And the only king who fits that description, of course, is Jesus. In Revelation, at the end of the Bible, he's called the king of kings. So what do we see of Jesus, the king of kings, as we glimpse him, as we meet him in this psalm? What sort of kingdom does he bring? What is there to challenge the republican uh, in us? Well, there are four things I want to draw your attention to. And the first of those is abundance. Abundance. A kingdom ruled by Jesus is a place of unimaginable plenty. So prosperity is there in verse 3, isn't it? Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people. And verse uh, 16 May there be abundance of corn in the land, on the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon. The psalmist is saying, bring to mind the most barren place you can think of, right on top of a mountain, so the summit of Mont Blanc, say, or Everest, and now imagine swathes of lush crops growing there. That is just how overflowing with good things life in Jesus' kingdom will be. And the abundance will be everywhere. The end of verse 16 uh, pictures life blossoming in the cities as well. Now, clearly, our country is, in world terms, a prosperous one, isn't it? So the post-war years under Queen Elizabeth have seen Britain grow in wealth. But it's just possible you've picked up that the picture of crops growing even on mountain tops is not one being used by journalists to describe our current economic situation. Instead, the debate has been about what shape recession we're in, U-shaped, V-shaped, L-shaped, or W-shaped. Well, in Jesus' kingdom, there will be no recession of any shape. Robert Paston will have to find something else to do because it's a land of amazing abundance, of unimaginable prosperity. Now, the teaching in the New Testament makes clear that we're not talking about life as a believer now, at least not in material terms. It does say we have every spiritual blessing. But, but nothing entitles us to expect material prosperity in the present. In fact, we're warned, aren't we, that life now may be hard, just as it was hard for Jesus. 
but, but that teaching doesn't dilute the reality of what we can expect on his return. His kingdom will be an abundant kingdom. And don't we see that embedded in Jesus' character when we see him in the gospel accounts? I particularly like the episode in Luke's gospel where Peter, the seasoned fisherman, has been out on the water all night, hasn't caught a thing. Jesus tells him to put his nets down. And what happens? He doesn't just get some fish. He gets so many fish that his nets are breaking. He calls other boats in to help, and those boats are sinking with the weight of fish. Jesus' kingdom is a place where nets are bursting and crops are growing even uh, on the mountaintops. Just one observation before we move on. I, I think we can say that Jesus is for prosperity, is for wealth creation. If you're involved in finance, in commerce, perhaps it helps you to know that, that helping in the creation of wealth is one way of partaking in the divine nature, is part of furthering God's design for the world. I mean, we're talking there, of course, about trade at its best, so true trade, where both sides to a deal are gainers. We're not talking about the few gaining by the exploitation of the many, or the the few living a life of luxury at the expense uh, of the many. Because the second thing to notice in the psalm is that this king will bring a caring kingdom, a caring kingdom. We can't miss the concern, can we, for the poor and needy. Perhaps you caught that as we read it through, that the poor are singled out for mention there in verse 2. And verse 4 says, May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy. And verse 12, For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Now, I think it is fair to say that our queen goes some way to fulfilling this picture. So next month, because I'm self-employed, I will be paying my half-yearly tax bill. Now, whether you do that or yours comes out at source, it goes to HMRC, doesn't it? Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. And from there, a large part of it gets distributed as benefits to those in society who need it. But while that goes some way to fulfilling the picture, I don't think anyone would argue that our system is perfect. So political parties, campaign groups have got different opinions on what tax and social security reforms would help improve things. What they all agree on is that whatever previous governments have done, it hasn't produced a society where everyone is properly and fully cared for. Jesus' kingdom will be that society because he is the king who will deliver the needy, as we see. There'll be no one below the poverty line in his kingdom. And because the oppressed, the vulnerable, well, they are his special concern. They are, as we read, precious to him. His is a caring kingdom. One of the features of American culture I particularly enjoy, but my wife's Americans, we go to America a lot, um, it is the bumper sticker. One of my favourites was a mock George W. Bush election promise, no billionaire left behind. Well, 
in Jesus' kingdom, no one will be left behind. There'll be no one falling through the cracks. Again, and before we move on, if, if the poor and vulnerable are of special concern to Jesus, surely they should be a concern for us now. We are, after all, called to be like him. People in the past, like William Wilberforce, acted on that calling by campaigning for the abolition of slavery. Organisations today, like Christians Against Poverty, act on that calling by helping people out of dreadful debt problems. And we should be doing our bit. Well, how's the little Republican in us doing so far? Calls set back a little... Uh, I hope. Well, there's still more. And the next point to notice about the kingdom uh, is this. It will be endless. It will be without limit. So firstly, without limit of time. We see that in verse 5, don't we? May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Now, as we're now all aware, Queen Elizabeth II has been on the throne a long time. Her diamond jubilee celebrates her 60 years the sovereign. But verse 5 doesn't picture a reign of 60 years. It pictures an infinite reign, an endless reign, a reign without any limit of time. Yes, the people in Jesus' kingdom will enjoy unimaginable prosperity and abundance. But more than that, there will be no bust after the boom, no recession after growth. The kingdom will just go on like that forever. And not only will the problems of poverty and oppression be remedied, they will simply never return. So without limit of time, but also without geographical limit, his dominion, verse 8, we see, verse 8, will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, the Commonwealth, of which our Queen is the head, is made up of many nations. How many? It's 54 Just one of the many facts I learned and then promptly forgot when my wife took the life in the UK test. Um, But verse 8 doesn't picture, does it, an association of 54 nations. It pictures a rule that extends to the very ends of the earth. There will simply be no part of the world which does not enjoy the abundant blessings of life under King Jesus. As verse 19, verse 19 there, which closes the psalm, and in fact this book of Psalms puts it, the whole earth will be filled with his glory. Well, last on our list of things to notice is this, at justice. Jesus will bring a just kingdom. Justice is there in the opening verses, isn't it? Verse 1, give the king your justice, O God. Verse 2, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Now, if you work in the courts, or if you've used them perhaps, you'll know that they are Her Majesty's courts. They're run by HMCTS, Her Majesty's Courts and Tribunal Service. The judge sits under the Royal Coat of Arms. And if your only experience of the legal system is watching TV journalists standing outside the Leveson Inquiry, you've seen the words on the building, Royal Courts of Justice. And Her Majesty's courts are pretty good. My experience is that judges get it right most of the time. But we all know that the system is imperfect. Um, There are problems with access to the courts. The legislation that judges have to apply is not always properly thought through. And the judges don't always get the right answer. 
well, Jesus will bring perfect justice. There'll be no wrong answers, no frustrated litigants, no miscarriages of justice. And isn't that what we all want? Lest justice be done and be seen to be done is one of our maxims, isn't it? And when it's not done, the press express our outrage. But in this glimpse of Jesus, we see a king who will bring perfect justice. The tabloids won't be able to make any criticism of his decisions. If you do work in the legal system or in regulation, uh, perhaps, isn't it an encouragement to know that God has a special concern for justice? When you get up in the morning to go to work as a solicitor, say, you're off to help in God's work of justice. So to do your bit to see, for example, that people fulfil their contractual promises, that rules are applied fairly and reasonably. I mean, that's work for which God has a special concern. And what about injustices we see, whether we work in the legal system or not? Well, there will be a spur to us to help justice where we can, but they're also a reminder of the one person, the one king, who can bring perfect justice. Next time we see a crime go unpunished or the innocent being wrongly punished, perhaps it'll turn our minds to the judge who makes no mistakes, the Lord Jesus. And that brings me to what I think is the big point, the big point to take away from this psalm, and it's this. This is a rule to be desired. It's a rule to be desired. I mean, we should be falling over ourselves shouldn't we, to be ruled by King Jesus. His kingdom is a place of unimaginable abundance where no one in the kingdom is left uncared for, where there's no injustice and where all that is endless. So without limit of time or place. And if we're believers here, surely the application for us is to catch the psalmist's desire for this rule. So when we pray, your kingdom come, as part of the Lord's Prayer. If we can think about just what we're praying for, then we really will want it to come. And if we can catch this desire, it's likely, isn't it, to have a lot of knock-on effects. So when times are tough and we start to question whether to carry on in faith at all, a desire for Jesus' rule will help us keep going. I mean, this is the abundant life he came to give us. We won't want to lose it. It'll be a spur to our evangelism. So our real desire for this rule is just bound to spill over in uh, sharing it with others. And it'll make us more ready, it seems to me, to submit every area of our lives to his rule now. Jesus wants to be transforming us now in readiness for our life in his kingdom to come. And if we desire his rule, it'll help us let go of the bits of our old self that all of us are uh, stubbornly holding uh, on to. But if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, uh, maybe it's because you haven't so far wanted to be ruled by Jesus. Perhaps you've believed instead the little Republican uh, in you who says, well, you know, if there is a God, he's not worth following because he doesn't care about all the bad things in the world. Or perhaps he says, God's a killjoy. He just wants you to follow rules and have no fun. Well, I hope the Republicans' cause has at least suffered a setback with this glimpse of the real Jesus. He does care 
about all the problems. In fact, as we've seen, he's committed to putting them right. And he's hardly a killjoy. What he offers to us, what he wants for us, is a life overflowing with good things for eternity. Uh, But before we close, we wouldn't be getting the full glimpse of this king if we ignore the hard edge that we see of him. That hard edge is there, isn't it, in verse 9. His enemies, we read, verse 9, lick the dust. Like all good kings, he can't put up with rebellion. Like all effective kings, he will defeat the rebels. I said at the start, if there's a bit of Republican about us, but the truth is this, we are all Republican rebels. The sobering truth that the New Testament opens our eyes to is that we are by nature God's enemies. Paul Paul puts it this way in Romans, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside. At the BBC's most recent opinion poll for the Jubilee said that 80% of us are for the monarchy. The Bible says, by nature, 100% of us are against King Jesus. And don't we have a sense of that? I mean, aren't we a bit torn when we think of Jesus bringing perfect justice? It's okay to think of his judicial gaze turned on others, but it's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it, to dwell on the prospect of our case coming up in front of him. And it will come. Man is destined to die once, it says in Hebrews, and after that to face judgment. But the wonderful truth is that the king of Psalm 72 has already come and died in our place on the cross so that we could be reconciled. Yes, we were enemies, but as Paul writes in Romans, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of Jesus. If if you're not a believer, please don't overlook this aspect of the glimpse we get of Jesus. Yes, he's a wonderful, a perfect king, but he has a hard edge. He's like Aslan in C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories. Uh, Lucy asks Mr. Beaver of Aslan, is he quite safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If we accept Jesus now, we're headed for the sunny uplands laid out for us uh, in this psalm. If we don't, verse 9 is there as a stark warning uh, of what we can expect. If we are those who have accepted Jesus now, well, let's thank God that the king doesn't give us what we deserve. That instead he came and suffered man's injustice so that we wouldn't have to face his justice. Uh, In the foreword, To his book, The Diamond Queen, Andrew Marr writes that he used to be a Republican, but no longer, and that the more he sees of the Queen, the more impressed he is. Well, substituting King Jesus for the Queen, uh, I pray that would be true um, for all of us. And let me pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for your King and his kingdom, and that while we were enemies... Uh, the King died uh, for us, that we could enjoy the abundant life. And help us, we pray, to desire Jesus' rule now, that we may enjoy it forever in the world to come. Amen.